0: Hey, Sam, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Kelvin. Woke up this morning. It was a beautiful day here at Georgetown University. Uh, hit the gym and then uh, rolled down here to the geopolitics office to uh, record this last bit of audio for our interview with Mary Elizabeth
1: Taylor. Sounds great. You know what I've been doing? What have you been doing, Kelvin? Well, I'm feeling really happy today. Because Why, Why th- are you feeling happy today? Well, because this morning I went onto Spotify. I typed in fly on the wall colon, a geopolitics podcast. And guess what I did then, Sam? What did you do? Well, I clicked subscribe. You You click subscribe. Made me 100% happier. 100% happy. If you
0: want 100% increase in happiness, subscribe to Fly on the Wall, colon, a geopolitics podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. And, Kelvin, let me ask you a question since you're feeling so good today. Yeah. What are our audience going to see? When they hit that subscribe button, what's
1: the first thing that's going to pop up? Well, they're going to see our interview with Mary Elizabeth Taylor. Mary Elizabeth Taylor has had a long and storied career in the Senate. She also served as the 32nd Assistant Secretary of State for Legislative Affairs. We had a great conversation with her about leadership styles, the Senate confirmation process, and what she's personally learned from politics.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You are not going to find a better person than Mary Elizabeth Taylor to talk about Senate confirmation and nominations processes or about personal leadership styles. Uh, in addition to working at the Secretary of State State's office, uh, she also worked from 2017 to 2018 at the White House, in the Trump White House, um, looking at uh, legislative affairs and Senate nominations. So definitely dive on. We're excited to bring you back to the fly for season 12. And we're also excited to share with you this amazing interview with Mary Elizabeth Taylor. Let's dive on in. Yeah, let's fly right in. So, uh, Mary Elizabeth Taylor, thank you so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall, and of course, um, as a Fall twenty twenty two fellow here at the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service.
2: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. Truly, thank you.
0: Absolutely. So, just to just dive on in real generally, uh, obviously, you're here holding discussion groups with uh, students at GU Politics. What are you excited to discuss this this semester, and particularly, um, why are you excited to be hosting uh, discussions about? leadership and public service and public policy now in fall of 2022?
2: I think what I'm most excited about, honestly, maybe a little bit selfishly, is to learn from all of all of you all. Um, you know, I think even just having been on campus for these past, you know, number of weeks or so, I feel like I've just been a bit of a sponge and like the optimism that comes and radiates from the Georgetown University students, you guys are just really, uh, really inspiring for our next generation. So I'm most excited to learn and be surrounded by all of you. Um, but you know, I think as far as discussion goes, I'm excited to just talk through all different approaches to leadership that I've experienced. Um, and I've been blessed to be around throughout my career, in all these different institutions that I've been able to work in. And then also talk a bit about like my own approach um, to it, and, and how I've how those insights, I garnered them in my own approach to leadership. And You know, I think I am really excited to hear what you all have to say about leadership, right? Like, I have had my own experiences, and I'm continuing to have them, but I'm excited to hear what the students here have to say as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know what, Sam? I'm always amazed and delighted when our delightful fellows say they learned so much from us, because I think I'm just a college student. What can I teach? (laughs) Especially uh, given your record, uh, I think you can teach us a whole lot about the nominations process too. So let's start our first question there. What is the nominations process? Can you run you, us through the behind-the-scenes action? <laughs> uh, how the sashes gets made in general, basically.
2: Yeah. No. It'll. <laughs> uh, it's a. It's a very complex. Uh, it's a tough process. Um, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't know that I can necessarily be the expert on it, but I can tell you about my own experiences with That's it. That's all we want. That's perfect. <laughs> um, so, I mean, going through Senate confirmation is a very, very tough gig. Um, and a lot of people have signed up for it. And it's you really put your life out there. Um, as everyone can see in some of the higher profile nominations processes that have happened, uh, you open yourself up to to the Senate and to the country and to the world. Um which can be very difficult. So you know, really, the process starts all behind the scenes when the selection of who the nominee should be happens. A lot of different dynamics go into that. So the nominations process, the nominations process is super complex. And um, you know, a lot of it does happen behind closed doors, but a lot of it is also any nominee has their entire life just kind of butterfly open in front of the Senate, in front of the country, and in front of the world. Um, for, for any, any nomination that goes through the United States Senate. So really it starts with the selection of the nominee, which is uh, definitely a behind the scenes process, a lot of different voices, opinions, and different processes that go into that selection process. Um, And that can sometimes take months, Um, typically takes months. And then once that person is selected and um, all the processes are complete, then that person gets nominated. That's when you see the press release of, you know, president selects this person to be the nominee, uh, you know, to be the ambassador to X country. Um, and then that really kicks off the process because your name is out there. Um, and everybody can start to dig into you and your life. Um, so really it's a shot out of the cannon. You're going. (laughs) Um, and so then once, once you start that process and you're officially before the Senate, you know, you depending on whichever uh, nomination, whichever role you are uh, going for, you go through a respective committee. So for my confirmation, I went through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee because I was at the State Department. Um, so you look, you work through each of the different committees. As you can imagine, every Senate committee is different. Um, every year, it's different depending on who's running the committee, um, be it the staff and the members, the makeup of the committee. So the processes all look different based on each committee and on each role in each agency in which place the nominee is going to. So, um, how I said before, like the nominations process is complex. It's complex because there's so many different dimensions to it and there's so many different players that go into uh, the confirmation process. Um, but once you get through, once you go into committee, you have a hearing, you get reported out, so that means the committee then votes on on your specific nomination at the committee level, then you're before the full Senate. And either you typically go through a, for, a floor vote or you get uh, voted by unanimous consent or vote, voice vote, which is uh, what happened with my confirmation, um, and then you are confirmed and then you start the job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're in sort of a unique position because you both have been through... The Senate confirmation process yourself and then, of course, went to the White House to head uh, managing other confirmations. So here's this might be a, a silly question, but when when you were approached and said, hey, we want you to, to head, uh, you know, confirmations through the Senate. um what is that job description? I mean, what what are the, the <laughs> tasks and responsibilities associated with that role?
2: Yeah, so you know, working on nominations from the White House and the way that I did it, I was in the beginning of an administration. So the entire government needs to get like stood up, and there are hundreds of jobs that are open um, and need to be filled um, speedily. And so that process that I just outlined for each individual nominee, times that by like hundreds of times <laughs> and then you put that through the dimension of all the different committees that that um, nomination has to go through. Um, so f- a lot of my job was trying to figure out how do we prioritize um, because, you know, you have to... it it takes a lot of work to get a nominee through, um, by a lot of different people. And so being able to have a sharp skill of prioritization and judgment is, was, was really key for me. Um, I think the other piece of the job was, you know, understanding the Senate, knowing, knowing the people being able to have a kind of broader holistic view of the Senate, um, which I was blessed to have had from working on the Senate floor. Like I, was able to work on all different kinds of things with all different kinds of people from all different kinds of (laughs) of committees. So, um, having that kind of broader holistic view was, was really
1: important. Since you're already an expert on the confirmations process, could you tell us a little bit more about the problems associated with it, at least from your end, and if you could wave a magic wand, right, what would you change about it to make it better?
2: I, th- I think that if you if you speak with anyone who's ever worked on nominations or has ever been a nominee, um, I think the through line that you will hear from most people is that the process is very, very slow. Um, and in some ways, that's deliberate, right? Like that is in some ways the Senate's role. That's why it's an incredible institution, right? The most deliberative body in the world. it is it is a good thing in some ways. Um, but in, in others, it can just like slow down the process of government, no matter who's, who's in the white house, right. You know, you, you really need your people, (laughs) you need your people in these jobs. Um, and so to not have leadership in, across the executive branch because of the confirmation process being slow really does hamper the ability to get things done, um, and I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to change in order to fix that, because that nominations are, are a huge, complex piece of how the Senate works and how the Senate works together with the executive branch. So I don't think there is a magic wand fix. Um, but I, I know that I, from both both sides of the aisle, I think anybody who's ever worked on noms would likely echo, it's a very slow
1: process. <laughs> And, like, speaking of slow, you mentioned how slow the government is, and that's, like, a pretty common stereotype. Now you're in fintech, which I feel like might be the polar opposite. What's your take on that opinion?
2: <laughs> um, I am in fintech. I'm at Robinhood. So, um, you know, I absolutely love it there. There are there are some simil- similarities, but there also are some differences. Um, moving fast is absolutely key. Um, and, you know, I think I would say, though, sometimes government gets a bad rap for like always being slow in all of the ways and 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 i i get i get that criticism i see it um but in in some ways it's necessary number one like the senate is a deliberative body it, intentionally um so i get it um but when i think back to my time in government like my days did not feel slow <laughs> <laughs> Things were moving very fast and, um, you know, it was very high stakes and, and the days did not feel slow by any means. So, you know, I think I, I, I understand the critique that government is slow, but I, at least in the experiences that I've had, it's been very fast, very high stakes and in a similar way with fintech. Um, so in, in Robinhood, you know, we we move fast, um, but we also move deliberately um, being in finance, We make sure that we stay compliant in every way. And so that takes a lot of attention to detail. That takes, you know, like very significant thoroughness in everything that we do. Um, So it's a kind of similar balance, to be honest with you. So I feel lucky that I was able to experience it before.
0: Um, Sort of to to pull on that thread of of entering different spheres. Obviously, you spent a long time, um, you know, working on the Senate floor and then working through a senate process from the white house side of things and now uh, of course uh at robin hood in fintech and i guess my question is um what's your approach to learning new spaces because um, mm. you mentioned having that knowledge of of the senate floor and how senators work and and relating that to other spheres of life and you know you're you're new on the scene where do you go first how do you begin <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> that's a great question so Look, I consider myself a continuous learner. I like to, I, mm. I am a curious person. I like to learn new things all the time and in new environments. Um, it keeps me really, really interested in what I'm doing. So I seek that out. Um, you know, and I think one thing that I personally struggle with is, is feeling like I'm not the expert on something. I like, I, I am the kind of person who overprepares. And I, try, I want to know everything there is to know before I step into a situation. But, you know, the continuous learner in me and looking for new environments to, to learn in, causes me to stretch that a bit, right, where I might not know absolutely everything there is to know. And so, when I first step into a new environment, I try to take a beat, and for you know at least 90 days, try to learn what's around me. I, I say 90 days from like my own perspective, from like moving from job to job. But depending on on what you're you know working with, if you're in a new course for the semester, um, or you're in a new club for the year, whatever whatever it might be, I think. Use your own judgment to understand what's the right amount of time at the beginning to just be and listen and learn and take things in, um, because I think if you immediately start to just do, like within that first second, everything, you're gonna deprive yourself the opportunity to learn in a way that you are being like intentional about the learning as opposed to like moving
0: immediately. So, sort in that, of in that similar vein. Mm-hmm you know, we think a lot about uh, politics and you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, Senate confirmations, as you mentioned, you know, someone's whole history, you know, you know out in the public sphere. And then, you know, we talk about being a continuous learner too, particularly in politics. Um, you know, we've heard from a lot of our previous guests, you have to pick a side, pick a camp, and that's sort of the sphere that you work in. And so you go in with sort of a, you know, you, you pick a side for a reason, a certain set of principles and, and values. Um, and then you have this continuous learning aspect of it too. So I'm just wondering... How do you – is politics a hard, a hard place to be a continuous learner, I suppose?
2: I, I don't think so because everything's constantly changing. <laughs> uh, everything's constantly changing. There are a lot of different institutions that you can be involved in. Mm-hmm. So for for me, you know, I, I will always say, like, the Senate is my bones. I love the Senate with all of my heart. And um, – you know, I will defend it, and it's people to the day I die. Um, so I, I feel a longing toward the Senate, but also I I balance that with a longing to be in different institutions to learn to learn more about the Senate from a different place. Like I think that I was I know I was able to learn more about the Senate um, when I was working with the Senate in different roles outside of it. So I just think that there's a lot of opportunity to experience new environments in politics. And I mean, with everything changing in this industry by the week, by the day, by the hour, having that continuous learner approach um, I think is incredibly necessary because I think it's important to be open and curious and learn and take that into to your own account, whatever that means.
1: Let's kick it a bit more to uh, the topic of your discussion section, which is leadership. You mentioned that you're a continuous learner and you've been surrounded by a bunch of leaders throughout your life. Obviously, you say that the Senate's in your bones, but now you're in fintech surrounded by a bunch of leaders and you've been in a lot of different departments. So I guess my question for you is what have you learned about leadership through the different roles you've been given? And how do you think that shaped your leadership style?
2: That's a great question. Um, you know, I have I have been blessed to be around and work with um, incredible leaders, all different kinds of leaders, throughout my entire career, um, and I feel really lucky for that. Um, and it definitely has informed my own approach. I think that I think that one thing that I really look up to um, for from different leaders and that are just coming to mind now that I I admire is. Like clarity of mission, clarity of what is it that we're doing and why are we doing it this way. If you don't have that from the leader, I think it is very hard to to lead a successful team. Um, and whether it's, you know, a huge organization or a small small group of folks that you're leading, having that communication, that clarity of mission is incredibly important. That said, I'm a very mission-oriented person, so of course that resonates with me. Um, but in, from from my own experience, I think that's probably a, that's a incredibly important piece. And then I think also trust um, is vital. You, you can't lead without it. Um, I don't think so, effectively. You have to build trust, you have to earn trust. And the, I think one lesson that I learned is that the actual, running of a team you need to carve out time you need to carve out energy in order to invest in it. It doesn't just happen. Um, you have to be deliberate about running your team
0: So pulling on especially those those first two qualities that you mentioned clarity of mission and trust. I'm curious what your reflections are on the state of those two things in our politics today. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in I'm particular I' <laughs> mean thinking about, the media cycle, right? You know, it seems like there's there's a new issue that bubbles up, and then we yell at each other for a bit about it, and then it simmers away. And I mean, you know, I mean, we've had countless speakers mm-hmm. come onto this podcast and and come to the doors of geopolitics saying public trust is waning, trust in our institutions and our media is is fraught. So I'm just wondering, what's what's your assessment of the state of those two characteristics in our yeah. politics?
2: You know, I think uh, I. Uh, I think one thing that I've learned about trust just in my past like 18 months or so of being in the private sector um, is that, you know, I think at large, the American people's trust of government, um, people have been doing a lot of studies into it, right? Like, how does trust look uh, from the American people to government and how does it look from the American people to the private sector, to all different kinds of institution? all different kinds of institutions, who do do people at large trust and why? Um, And so one thing that has been interesting from like this new role that I'm in is looking at it from a private sector perspective, right? Like where can the private sector step in in ways that the government hasn't or can't uh, to help build that trust? Um, And I think, you know, just like pulling on the clarity of mission piece, it's why I came to Robin Hood, right? Like our mission is very clear. We are there to democratize finance for all. It's a very clear mission. And for me, someone who is mission oriented, I had to go somewhere that had a larger vision just like that. And so it's been interesting to be in a place that is so mission oriented and has changed the finance industry as a whole um, in just a number of years since we've since we were created as a company, um, and see how that can link with trust from a private sector side, um, especially in an industry that is so um, integrated with government. We're a highly regulated industry. Um, so it's been interesting to see
1: it through that perspective. Yeah, that actually is interesting. Uh, but like moving a bit back into your time at GU Politics, you mentioned you've already learned so much about uh you mentioned you already learned so much from the students here i was just interested what have you learned
2: i think what has struck me is the volunteer aspect of Mm -hmm. all of this like you all have so much work to do as like a full-time student right and then on top of that signing up to volunteer to do more work essentially because of like interest and passion, um, you don't really. I don't really see that that much. That is a rare thing for me to see at like this point in my life and this point in my career, and that is absolutely striking, especially from a, you know, politics standpoint. That there's such like veracity and passion in it from the students here. Like it's 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 pure, and I I respect that. It's it's good to be involved.
1: Sam, I think Mary Elizabeth is discovering our Jesuit values. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I applaud it. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, I, I guess this is this is sort of a broader question about about finding your way mm. in politics. like if, mm. if you're someone interested in, in, in how policy works itself out, but frequently it can seem sort of daunting to take, passion about a particular issue or particular perspective and find a way to express it, um, in, in government or in the political world. And so I was just wondering, how do you decide, you know, where to go, what, what avenue of issue to pick, and then also how to go about, uh, finding a place for that in here, you know, in the Beltway.
2: You know, I think one thing I would say is you, you, just because you choose something to be like a policy area that you're interested in right now does not mean that you're signing up for that for the rest of your life. And like, I want, I want to be clear that, you know, zooming out a little bit. One time I I got some advice um, from someone that said, they said to me, every step that you take in your career narrows the pyramid of your career, right? Like you are taking a step forward, which means that your options narrow. Um, and I was struck by that because I categorically disagree with it. Um, <laughs> I I just, I rebuke it. I refuse it. That's not, <laughs> that's not how I approach life. Um, I think that every step you take, you learn more, you expose yourself to more, and it opens up more options to you. So I, I would want to make sure that I'm being clear and, and expressing that just because you choose something does not mean that you have to only look at that thing for the rest of your career. That would, I, I could not handle that. Um, But I know that there are some people who have spent, you know, their entire careers focusing on like one specific country or region um, or one specific piece of, of policy, which is absolutely essential as well, right? Like we need those experts who know the depth of like thousands of years of history of this, Of this region, um, so that way our foreign policy can be can include that kind of expertise. Um, So I think my my advice would be to go with your gut. It's something that my parents always told me. You know, you have to follow your instincts. Your instincts aren't wrong. Um, Go and explore and talk to as many people as you can. Right? Like, not everything is a job interview. (laughs) Like, honestly, like people want to talk about themselves. Go talk to people, even if you know there's just a little piece of some policy that you might be interested in. Maybe you don't even know if you are or not. Go talk to them, have a conversation, ask them about their career. What you know? What did they get into? What do they find the most challenging? Um, what was the easiest? Who are other people that they think that you should talk? That kind of thing. Just having open conversations with as many different people as possible, I know is very draining and time consuming, but it's all the ROI on that is
1: extremely high. Um, So I would say explore. That's a perfect point, right? Uh, I I find myself agreeing with that so much on like a fundamental level. Uh, I definitely feel the need to like spread my wings around, but, you know, as flies do. Yeah, as flies do, <laughs> but being forced to, you know, highly specify. I guess my question relates to the fact that you say we need people who have expertise in the world. And I imagine you've been in a lot of rooms with them. Um, my question's more about as someone uh, with your identity, specifically as a young black woman, how do you, like, find your ground in rooms filled with people who have spent their lives studying the things you have to now, like, talk to them about
2: yeah. You know, I think that's also a great question. Um, you know, I think when I look at, at my career experience, you know, I, I was I was in rooms with people that are different than me in a lot of ways and similar to me in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and I think in the ways that I was different, yes, I was young, um, black and a woman. Um, and in a lot of these rooms, I was the only one um, or one of one of few. And you know, I think I, I actually forget who gave me this advice. But what I started to realize was I stood out in a lot of ways that put me in that room, right? Like my expertise in the Senate is why I was in certain rooms and in certain conversations in the White House. It's and my expertise from then with being in the White House and in the Senate is why I was supposed to be in the room when I was an Assistant Secretary of State right? Like I, I earned that and it's my expertise. And that lives in concert with who I am and my, and my identity. Um, so what I started to shift my mindset toward was knowing that like all of the pieces that make me me, regardless of, you know, being young, being black, being the only woman, every individual facet of me and my identity from my expertise, to who I am, to my values, every piece of me does differ from everyone else, right? Like we are individuals and the differences that I have are my jet fuel. Like I recognize that because I'm different is why I am in the room and and, in so many ways, right? Like my specific experience is individual and unique to me. And that's why I've been able to you know, earn this, this path, my career path and be in rooms that, you know, other people don't sure. They might not have like a similar identity to me, but they also don't have like a similar background in me and like that expertise. So whatever makes you different is why, you know, you want to have all these different Ooh. kinds of people in the room, no matter what those differences are.
0: We you know, Mary thank you so much for settling, settling down with the fly and giving us, um, your, your lay of the land from your perspective. It's been great to have you on. There is, however, one last fly <laughs> challenge that we subject oh all of our God. guests to, <laughs> which is the famous fly on the wall lightning round.
1: Uh- oh my God. Welcome to the fly lightning round. We, <laughs> we ask some quick questions and hopefully get some quick answers.
2: <laughs> just for the record, nobody told me about this before, just so everyone knows, this is like very, very true lightning. <laughs>
1: I want to take it with the first one. So question
0: one, just right off the bat, all of history is at your disposal. Oh uh, your discussion group is about leadership. Uh, what's one historical figure whose leadership style you really admire?
2: So maybe this name is not a historical figure that everyone thinks about, and maybe this is a little bit of a cop-out, but my mom. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so my mom was the first black female director of White House media relations. She worked in the first Bush White House. Um, and she, her approach to leadership really is at the core of, of how I approach it, which is like turning inward and being very authentic with yourself and knowing who you are and taking that authenticity and applying it to whatever position you are in. Um, no matter what kind of leader you are, the advice that I always get from her is to like turn inward and be very clear about my center. And I can always have my center no matter where I am, no matter what situation. If I'm sitting in a room with the Secretary of State, if I am at home hanging out with my dog, if I am out in the wilderness fly fishing, wherever I am, I have my center and no one can take it from me. And that has powered me through some uh, very hard
1: situations. Honestly, not the direction I thought you would take with that question, but ended in, like, the perfect way. Uh, Our second question is, what do you like to listen to while you work?
2: While I, like, work, like, do professional work or work out? Okay. While I work, classical music. Mm. Um, So I uh, have danced ballet my whole life. And so I would highly suggest listening to, like, a full ballet (laughs) because it has, like, a story with it. It's not just, like, kind of errant classical music from different composers or, or, or different albums or anything like that, but it has an actual story to it, and you can feel the ebb and the flow without actually, like, listening to words because that distracts me.
0: Out of curiosity, what do you listen to when you work out?
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I listen to... I listen to the Spotify playlist uh, called BBE. It's like got a lot of like Doja Cat and some Beyonce and some Megan, and it just makes me feel really powerful. Like, yeah.
1: It's because I don't feel powerful when I work out. <laughs> I'm just wondering what does BBE stand for?
0: Bad bitch energy.
2: Okay. <laughs> That's great.
0: Actually, yeah. Kelvin and I actually have 20 minutes of overlap at the gym. Where yes. He's cooling down, and I'm just getting started. And seeing Kelvin walk out, I, maybe, maybe, maybe I need some of that playlist because I'm not, yeah. not in a good spot. I'm listening
1: to NPR. Uh, <laughs> of course you are, Kelvin. Not BBE. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our last question, Kelvin. Take it away. Okay, so our question is something very relevant to Georgetown students. What is the best lunch spot in downtown D.C.?
2: Best lunch spot, like a sit-down situation, or like a grab-and-go situation. You're, and
1: you're eating it. You're a go-to. Yes.
2: Like a workday situation, or like a weekend situation. Let's
0: work do day. day. Got to yeah, fit. We're busy in. people. Yeah. Mon- Monday to work Friday. Day. Hmm.
2: So it's hard because I haven't been. Go- I haven't been going into the office for these past couple of years. I don't know. Maybe this is a little bit annoying of an answer. However, my answer is the White House mess is incredible, and I know you can't go, but like, uh, it's the first place that comes to mind. They are incredible. They're like just like wonderful people who work there. Um, I can I can think of a I can think of a place.
0: I, I think our listeners just need to yeah. apply for jobs at the White House. That's, <laughs> yeah. <what I> think. <laughs> That's right. Get
2: invited to the White House mess.
0: It's really cool. Like, <laughs> well Mary Elizabeth thank you so much for sitting down with the fly it's been a pleasure
2: thank you you so much you guys this is you guys are great um and like ask really really thoughtful questions and and I just I appreciate being here thank you
0: absolutely and if you enjoyed this conversation be sure to swing by Mary Elizabeth's discussion group weekly at geopolitics.
2: yes Thursdays four o'clock please come by I would love to see you
0: thanks for listening to fly on the wall you can find us on social media by searching at Flyin' the Wall Pod. Inquiries may be sent to our email address, flyin'thewall at georgetown.edu. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to subscribe to Fly in the Wall, a geopolitics podcast, and leave a five star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. The Fly's researchers are Kelvin Doe, Robin Huang, and Zan Hock. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Fiona Gallagher. Our producer is the mighty Max Paley. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. I'm Sam Kehoe, managing director of the pod. Fly on the Wall is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCord School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening and fly with you soon.